0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1332. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, the 2019 Contra Cruise is going to be coming up before you know it. It is the libertarian event of the year. Naomi Brockwell, a guest on the show, recently said it was the best event she had ever been to. We're going to be joined by special guests Gene Epstein and Brad and Deidre Berzer this year. Join Bob Murphy and me and a ton of wonderful, genial folks for the adventure of a lifetime as we set sail for Alaska July 5th through the 12th, 2019. Get the details at ContraCruise.com. Hello, everybody. Tom Woods here. Very glad to be back with Brian McClanahan once again. We just talked to Brian last week, but doggone it, there's so much to be replied to out there on the internet. and. Brian and I are going to take on an article that I've been telling you about that keeps getting tweeted out periodically in certain libertarian circles. Let's just put it that way. And the article is called – it's over at libertarianism.org. And it's called Why – and then in quotation marks libertarian – defenses of the Confederacy and, quote, states' rights are incoherent by a fellow named Jonathan Blanks. So, of course, I'll link to the article at TomWoods.com slash 1332. You can look at it for yourself. But it raises what I think are some fairly conventional arguments against secession in general and allowing the Southern secession in particular. These are arguments you could easily encounter on any mainstream website, any left-wing website. Uh, really, any any website that's going to take the conventional view on things will repeat more or less the arguments you're going to find in this article. And as Brian and I will be talking about, the author begins with, Well, you know what? Let me leave that for our discussion with Brian. Remember, Brian is the host of the Brian McClanahan Show, which recently surpassed 200 episodes. You can check him out on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. Brian is spelled B-R-I-O-N, Brian McClanahan, M-C, then another C, Lanahan, so McClanahan. And check him out at brianmcclanahan.com. He's the author of numerous books, most recently How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. Great guy, really smart, really sound, holds a PhD from the University of South Carolina where he studied under the great and heroic Clyde Wilson. Brian, welcome back.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. Seems like just last week we were talking. I I think it was. As a matter of fact, yeah, as a matter of
0: fact, but I thought (laughs) I enjoyed that one so much and our laughter in there was just, uh, it was just so much fun. And then Lou Rockwell ran on his site the text of my email newsletter where i promoted that episode so we got more listeners it was a lot of fun so what we want to do today is look at an article on libertarianism.org which is a kind of mainstream beltway style libertarian website and uh, i occasionally see the cato institute tweet out this particular article from february 2012 Uh, every few months one of them tweets it out and it's called why in quotation marks, libertarian, defenses of the Confederacy and, quote, states' rights, unquote, are incoherent. Now, of course, I would love to hear how they address Lysander Spooner's opinion on this subject, but alas, no mention of Lysander Spooner anywhere in the piece. So it's by a fellow named Jonathan Blanks. Um, He's not a – I mean, they don't say anything about him other than he works at Cato, and you looked him up a little bit. He doesn't seem to be a historian or anything, which, by the way, I'm not of the snobby opinion that if you're not a credentialed historian, you're not entitled to an opinion. But I'm just saying that if he were, we would want to say that and just explain what his credentials are, but, but he, he ain't got none in this area. So let me begin by just reading the first two paragraphs of the piece. He says, there is a strain of libertarian contrarianism. So right away, right away on by <laughs> word seven, it's <laughs> yes, my right. opponents can't possibly be sincere. They're just cranks who like to be on the other side of everything.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's right. Just yeah. contrary people. They're just right. – you're right. It's, it's now, by the way,
0: that's not to say I haven't met some people like that in the libertarian world. Let's face it. But all right. He says that holds that the Confederate states of America were within their, quote, rights, unquote, to secede from the Union. Such contrarianism on this particular topic is detrimental to the larger cause of liberty because the logic of this argument relies upon relinquishing individual rights to the whim of the state. Indeed, as there is no legal or moral justification for supporting the Confederacy in the Civil War, it is impossible that there could be a libertarian one. Now the second paragraph. The legal argument against secession is straightforward. Beyond the simple fact that most countries don't provide for their own dissolution at the outset, the Constitution is not silent on the use of force by the federal government. Article 1, Section 8 clearly grants Congress the power to put down insurrections, as the South was well aware. As recently as 1859, that power had been used by then Union Colonel Robert E. Lee to put down John Brown's mindless and bloody raid on Harper's Ferry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Oh, gosh, Brian, there are more paragraphs even <laughs> after these, but why don't there's, we- There's 11 pages of this, 11 pages. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, and, uh, all right. So how do you, first of all, do you want to start with the first paragraph? What, what do you think? <laughs> okay. Um,
1: yeah. Okay. Well, a couple of things I underlined here, the whim of the state, individual rights to the whim of the state. This is, it's a, it's a very strange view of what happened in the South because, and I, and I run into this a lot, people will say, well, the state seceded, but- what the way this happened, and people don't often realize this, they think, well, maybe the legislature called a session, they says these these states seceded through popularly elected conventions. So they called a convention of the people of the state. So the people of the state seceded, and that's the foundation of American government. If we go back and we talk about what are the states, Well, the founding generation would have said they're, they're the people of the states. I mean, you look at how the Constitution was ratified. It was ratified in convention of the states. Now, I know Marsha would say, well, that was only because it was convenient. Otherwise, it was the whole people. We can get into all that argument all day long. But the fact is the people of the states seceded. So it wasn't the whim of the state. This was, in some cases, unanimous that these conventions left the union. So, Yeah,
0: but on the other hand, don't people say these conventions were just dominated by big planters and stuff like that?
1: Well, they do say that. In some cases, you do have you do have a large number of these large planters, but not I mean not everyone there was a large planter, and uh, certainly even in some cases, these there was some just debate about secession, and and uh, it still were the the majorities in these conventions were larger than that which would have supported independence in 1776. So I don't buy the argument that oh okay yeah there were some large planters there, they're slave owners yeah I mean well yeah that's that's a granted that that happened, but the fact is we still have to look at who was driving these things out. And would that have been any different if they're in the United States? These large planners dominated the, the, the uh, congressional delegations, the state governments, it didn't really matter. Um, so what are they supposed to do? We'll say, you know what, you large planners, you can't vote, we're just gonna let these people vote because posterity will look back and say, well, just the large planners drove us out of the union. That That's not gonna happen. And, and even the middling plantation owners, the small plantation owners, even non-slaveholders uh, voted for secession, a lot of them. So this was a comprehensive movement towards secession. I don't think that you can get away with saying it's the whim of the state. And then he says there's no legal or moral justification for supporting the Confederacy. No legal? I mean, this is where he gets into paragraph two. So- this first paragraph is so problematic, and then he then he just doubles down in paragraph two. So, do you want me to go into that and start talking about legality of secession, or you know, my yeah, argument? Yeah, for let, this?
0: let's talk about. Uh, I mean, first of all, beyond let, let me just say, beyond the simple fact that most countries don't provide for their own dissolution <laughs> at the outset, that's not an argument. That doesn't mean no. anything. No, that, that's a, that's like a Lincolnian argument that just doesn't mean anything.
1: Yes, exactly right. Well so when you look at this, and there's two arguments against secession. One, Article one, section eight doesn't say that a state can leave the union. And two, Article one, section ten says that states can't form confederacies, right? So Article One, Section Ten is where the power is denied to the states. Article one, section eight are the powers granted to the general government. But when you say Article One, Section Eight, there's no power in the Constitution to leave the Union, well, of course not. Because all the powers that weren't listed there were reserved to the state. So if they don't say we can't secede in Article 1, Section 10, they can. This was how the Constitution was sold across the board to the people who ratified it in the convention. So this argument that well, because it doesn't say you can't secede doesn't mean it means you can't do it. No, that's a complete you don't even understand ratification. You don't understand original intent. You don't understand how this process worked. So clearly he doesn't he doesn't know this. Um, And I don't fault them for that because this is one thing that people often use. Well, it doesn't say you can secede so you can't secede. The fact that it doesn't say that they can or can't secede means that they could. Um, and in fact, you know, you had three states said we're going to have uh, resumption clauses in our as a conditional ratification, Virginia, New York. Uh, and so we're going to make sure that these that if the general government abuses its powers, we're out of here. I mean, we're going to leave this union. Now, we can talk about these resumption clauses were ultimately rejected. And but still people recognize and James Wilson sold the Constitution on the fact in the State House yard speech that, look, if it doesn't say we can do it, we can't do it. Everything else is left to the states. And so if it doesn't deny the states the power of uh seceding, leaving the union, then the states can leave the union. All right, it's- yeah, let me jump
0: in on this because the point of a of a government with enumerated powers, a federalist system, is that you don't list the powers of the states in the Constitution. You list the powers of the federal government. Right. And then you say everything not listed remains with the states. Right. So because there's no prohibition on secession in Article 1, Section 10 – And there's no positive right of the federal government to suppress secession.
1: Therefore, secession. Now,
0: now, but he will say he's going to talk about putting down insurrections, and he's going to claim that that's what the South is engaged in. Now, and so we should get into that, but I'll start off by saying that what really matters here is the debate between the compact and nationalist theories of the Union. Right. Because if you believe in the compact theory, and All the evidence supports the compact theory. I I will hear no dissenting voices on this. All the evidence supports it. There's not a stitch of evidence for the nationalist theory, which is why you don't even see a coherent attempt to (laughs) articulate a nationalist theory until probably the 1830s. Who would even bother trying? There's no no evidence for it. The point is that the states obviously are the constituent parts of the union, and I've argued this at great length. On the show notes page, I will put some defenses of the – the compact theory, because once you have that, that the states are the constituent parts, they're the creators of the union. Well, if they can accede to the union, they can secede from the union. They don't they don't yield sovereignty. They're exercising their sovereignty by joining the union, and they can just as well exercise it by withdrawing. This was a generally understood principle of international law in the 18th century. So I've, I've got to put defenses of compact theory. So that's a, a lot of what it relies on. But also, I mean, if you are a nationalist, you would look at the Southern secession as being an insurrection because you – your brain won't allow you to conceive of the idea of a constituent part exercising its sovereign powers and withdrawing because there are no constituent parts. It's one giant indivisible blob. So instead of saying this sovereign body is making a sovereign uh, decision by means of its sovereign powers, instead what what the nationalist sees is an arbitrary grouping – of individuals have decided to resist the government. Right. That's, well, that's not John, the way it, it happened.
1: That's that's John Marshall. I mean, they're getting into John Marshall's argument in McCulloch v. Maryland, and and uh, so, but that's that's beyond. You're right. And one thing I will say, there's not a compact theory; it's a compact fact. I mean, I, I don't ever use that theory. That's that's even giving a little bit too much. Saying, well, there's a theory. No, it's not a theory; it's a fact. And you go back and look at the ratification process. It's a fact that the Constitution was a compact between the states. Marshall, notwithstanding, who said again at the beginning, I said, well, look, he argued that uh, all these uh, th- th- they had to ratify conventions because they couldn't do just one large convention. Uh, so we had to do it in the states. No, that's not why they did it that way. They did it that way because they knew that the states were parties to the document, So they had to agree to it within the states themselves. You're right, though, if you're if you think of it as a nationalist. You can't conceive of it any other way. There's an insurrection, an an arbitrary – it's a Lincolnian argument. Again, this Lincolnian idea, and this is how he sold it. There is a faction in these states that are uh, rebelling against the constituted authority. The faction was unanimous (laughs) or 80 percent, 70 percent. I mean you're looking at such large percentages. So the faction would be the people that opposed it, Um, and this is the Bill Bennett – Don Livingston told me one time, you know, if, if we were to have secession today, and he said on – this was back in the early 2000s, maybe late 90s, early 2000s. He said if there was one person in a state that said they – if a state seceded and one person said they didn't want to leave that state, then we would send in the army to defend that one person. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean a faction to them would be 99%, uh, 99 percent, 99.9 percent. That's a faction. It's, it's ridiculous. So – uh, they're using the means that were given them to agree to the document to get out of the union. So I don't know if we can say much else about this, but it's – his argument is bad from the beginning.
0: Now, before we go on to the uh, third paragraph, let's
1: <laughs> – There's too many paragraphs. I know. We could take, take four episodes of the topic to go to this. Um,
0: <laughs> let's – nevertheless, let's, let's uh, still say something about what does the Constitution have in mind? When it says the Congress can put down insurrections, does it mean something like a state seceding or whatever? I mean, what what's actually
1: involved in that? Right. Well, according to the Constitution, in order for that to happen, the states themselves have to request for federal interference uh, and to to actually come in and and participate in putting down this insurrection. And this this is an interesting topic because we know these states wouldn't ask for it. Uh, and you go all the way back to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is when this first we, we first start seeing what can happen here. So you have this Whiskey Rebellion in the 1790s, and Alexander Hamilton is agitating to send in the army to, to the hills of Pennsylvania to put down these farmers. And uh, Washington is reluctant. He's saying, well, I don't know if we should do this. And in fact, the Supreme Court Chief Justice, John Jay, at the time, says it's illegal for us just to send in the army. We can't do it, we can't send the militia. It's illegal because the state of Pennsylvania hasn't asked for it. And even the governor of the state, uh, Thomas Mifflin, who was at, the uh, the ratifying convention he knew he knew the process he knew how this whole thing works said no I'm, we've got this taken care of but of course Hamilton ultimately persuades Washington that it needs to be done and then you've got James Wilson of Pennsylvania the ardent the arch nationalist who was on the bench of the, the federal bench on the Supreme Court and he says yep there, we can do this because I'm going to say it can happen we've got this militia act so we're going to send in the army by by James Wilson doing that he undermined the entire understanding of how that particular part of the Constitution was supposed to be interpreted. And of course, that's the only uh, historical evidence Lincoln needed to then send in the troops, that there's an insurrection. We don't need the states because there's a combination too powerful to suppress. And this is the kind of language that's used. So we're just going to send in the army to put down this insurrection against a constituted authority because they attacked Fort Sumter. Um, But the the whole point of that was that the states were still central in that process. The general government couldn't just send in the army unless the states asked for it. And that's where that part is missing in Lincoln's process there in 1861. All right. Now let's move on to the next paragraph
0: because in the next paragraph he's saying – he's conceding that to some extent if you're going to embrace the American tradition at all, secession is part and parcel of that because the Declaration of Independence, he correctly acknowledges, is a secession document, which is interesting because – that's not the usual line that critics like this take. They will usually take the Harry Jaffa line right. that uh, it's that the Declaration of Independence authorizes revolution, but not secession. Whatever that you know, it's these ridiculous hair splitting distinctions. <laughs> um, so, so he admits that, but he says, but that doesn't mean that every single secession is morally justified. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we can say that yes, we you know we don't rule out secession, but we don't universally embrace it either. Now, the to me, the difficulty with that is that means that – well, then who gets to decide if a state right. or a group of states gets to secede? It's always going to be the – so it's the central government gets to decide if they're morally pure enough to secede? <laughs> well, gee, uh,
1: you think you're stacking the deck in a particular way? Right. Yeah, who decides that? I mean, do we do we give it, send it off to an international tribunal? Uh, do we just gather some people on the street and say, hey, do you think these people are right? Who does decide? Uh, I think that the people themselves of the state and those that can vote and those who participate in the polity they would be the ones that would decide if the act would be morally justified. And again, in this case, the people of the states of the South decided that it was morally justified that they would secede. We're looking back on it. this is this is armchair quarterback from from 2018 or whenever he wrote this thing. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous, um, to get into this, to this argument, the people at the time decided they were morally justified in doing it. And so therefore they did it. And, you know, should the general government be involved? Absolutely not. Because they're going to say no. Uh, Would the British have said that it's okay for the American colonies to leave in 1776? Oh, well, let's see. Are you morally justified on this? Let's, let's put this to debate in the parliament. Uh, of course they would have said no. So what do you do then? It's a weak argument and a stupid argument, to be honest, uh, because it just doesn't make any sense. Who decides the people themselves that are pulling off the process of secession? But you know what? Let
0: me just, to be as honest as I can, let me raise an objection that, frankly, I haven't fully resolved in my own mind, which is that I could think of cases of secession that would make me very uncomfortable. So, for example, when Kosovo was seceding from, Serbia. Mm-hmm. I was afraid that what would happen. I mean, we know full well they're going to destroy Orthodox churches, and there's going to be uh, uh, some violence. Mm-hmm. So I know that's going to be the outcome. Can I really just mindlessly cheer that secession? You know, so that's that's my concern. That there can be circumstances in which there would be bad results with secession.
1: Well, sure, certainly, and this is where we get into majoritarian government and how far do you want to take government? And uh, you know, when you have these type of situations, um, I think something that you could say we talk about secession nowadays. For example, you've got people agitating for California secession. Uh, and uh, the leftists who are advocating for California secession. Well, there's a lot of people that don't like that government. So I think the morally responsible thing to do would say, okay, we're going to repatriate these people back into into real states, right? We're going we're going to take them out of the socialist California, and we're going to bring them in. We're going to we're going to do this as a humanitarian concern. We're going to bring these people out of California. So maybe that's something that you start looking at. Okay, well, if this is a a bad secession. We we can look at this and say, there's going to be some nasty things happen. Let's try to do something to get some of the people out or do something to solve that type of problem. But um, when you start talking about political solutions and you look, not every, not every group you're going to agree with and why they want to separate. So I come down on the side. Well, if it's, if it's the actual citizens of that area, then these are, this is the polity. These are the people voting. Then they should be allowed to do it. So then we have to deal with what can we do on the humanitarian side for those that might be affected by it. It's that is a difficult argument uh, when when you put it that way. So, but in this case, uh, when you when you compare apples to apples in 1861, these small minority in the North were those that are advocating for any type of civil or political or social uh, liberties for. Slaves. Most Americans weren't really concerned about that too much at all. It was just a, a granted, even in the North. So, there, the Northerners weren't really morally concerned about the plight of slaves either. Uh, this was something that was political. So, um, and you had states that were opposed to secession, even slave states, uh, initially because they thought it would better stay better to be in the, it would be better to be in the Union. So. I just think this is a different scenario than, say, something nowadays when we're talking about other types of political secessions, because we're comparing apples to apples here.
0: Let's see. I don't want to skip anything that you think is worth discussing, but let's let's go on to where he says. Uh, well, it's kind of
1: elaborating on his point that well the the next the next two paragraphs I think are very important. Paragraph four and five, and I mean we can. And the reason I say they're very important because. First of all, um, he says that you know Confederate sympathizers, Confederate secession defenders is what he calls people, will never say that they're in favor of chattel slavery, but they rely on the assumption that secession is an unbounded right and thus a state may leave a country for whatever reason it chooses. One of the things that's interesting, of course, he just talked about the Declaration. He's missing part of that entire story, and I think that story is important. When in 17 – if he's going to say that Confederate secession was morally reprehensible – why doesn't he make the same case in 1776? He doesn't make the same case in 1776 because he's not being intellectually honest. In 1776, each state was a slaveholding state. Every state in the United States was a slaveholding state. In fact, the, some people on the left know this. Uh, I just saw um, the other day that when when this uh, Ben Shapiro statement about uh, Hitler's baby or something, I don't know, if, I didn't really read it too much. Baby this, Hitler. Would you baby kill Hitler, Baby Hitler? Yeah, right. So there were lefties out there saying we should have killed baby George Washington because then we wouldn't have the American War for Independence, and then we could have abolished slavery in 1830. You see, that war, the British actually pegged that war as a war for slavery. There were two instances, one in New York, in New York, not in the South, in New York, and one in Virginia where the British made it an explicit part of the war to free slaves. So if we're saying that we're going to be opposed to an independence movement that is pro-slavery, then we have to oppose the original secession of the United States too. We can't have one and not the other. And I think this is where these you, you get to intellectual dishonesty. Um, why is it that it's okay to pass over and say, well, the American War for Independence, that's good. Uh, but we had a bunch, every state was a slaveholding state. Why is that good? And even at the end of the war, Washington wanted, there were a bunch of slaves on a ship and they were going to be shipped out to Nova Scotia. And he wanted all these slaves brought back. The British just ignored them and sent them out anyways. Uh, because he said, look, this was confiscated property. You got to bring our slaves back. And the British just sent them out. So if the British were the abolitionist position, well, why aren't we supporting the British in 1776? Why aren't we supporting the British in 1781? Why aren't we just saying, you know, Washington, all these guys were wrong. We should have never been independent from the beginning. Secession is completely morally reprehensible, even in 1776. Well, to say the Confederate secession was morally reprehensible, then you'd have to say the same thing about the American War for Independence. And so I think this is one thing that we miss in all of that. It has to be emphasized. They're the same. You can't have one without the other, and you can't say one is bad and one's good Because they're both – you both had slaveholding republics in those particular situations.
0: I know Kevin Goodsman has also made an argument like this a number of times, so that's very interesting. Now, that kind of covers some of what he then does unless you want to add further comment in quoting from (laughs) the – quoting from documents from South Carolina, Georgia, Texas, and Mississippi right. indicating their rationale for secession. Do you want to say right. something about that?
1: Because I, I get this a lot too, like I've never read these documents or something. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Did you see these? Like Miraculous Discovery. I've never – like we're going to say – you know, I've never seen those before. It, it is I've, the it is
0: the uh, American history equivalent of who will build the roads.
1: <laughs> yeah, I never thought of that. I've never seen those documents before. Wow, really? Those exist? I never knew that was there. Yeah, okay, see, the the argument I make about this, and it's something I talked about on the Brian McClanahan Show one time, I'm sure you've heard this Occam's razor thing, right? Where it's the simplest explanation is the the right explanation. So that's a theological argument, though, and it was about the existence of God. So it's completely different from a historical argument, which is so complex, right? Do, Do we sit back and say, Okay, you know, in 1914, uh, we had the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and that's what started World War I. Would you be intellectually honest by saying that? Now, of course, we could say, well, that was a spark. Certainly, that, that led Austria to invade Serbia, and then you had the mobilization. But was that the longstanding cause of the war? Was the war caused by one guy shooting another guy? You would be laughed out of the auditorium if you said that, and we're serious about it. This was it. This was the thing that caused the war. So when you say that slavery, and we'll get into some other things with uh, how you know Lincoln and and he talks about some of this, but if you say slavery was it, that was the only thing, then you ignore 80 years of American history and the conflict between North and South going all the way back to even the the Philadelphia Convention itself, when these things were brought up, and it was said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna have a union that has the states can do, they, they only have, they have so many things that they can't do, few things, they can do everything else. We have a union of states. So that was designed to solve these problems. And there is a, and he brings up the cornerstone speech too, which is uh, Stevens. And one of the things I find interesting about that, he does say that, uh, that this was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution, the immediate cause, but there's also the longstanding causes. Uh, And that's something that Robert Toombs, who was also of Georgia, made a very famous speech when he brought up all the economic issues. These things were brought up. So everyone, they cherry pick. They say, well, here's Stevens. Here are these secession declarations. And they forget and they ignore everything else. South Carolina actually had two secession declarations, one which was heavy on economics, one which wasn't. And so you have all this evidence out there, and they make this thing so simplistic because – that's what you do to get an A on the test, right? So that's what you do. Students want to know, I want to know the right and wrong answer. Well, history is not the right and wrong answer. It's very complex. And I think that that's where we miss this stuff when we start talking about simple reasoning or simple rationale for the war. Uh, And even Stevens himself said he was misquoted in that speech. I mean, this is not word for word. He made a speech and somebody wrote some stuff down and he later said, I didn't really say it exactly like that. So you get into that issue too, you know, what was actually said and what wasn't said. So and, and the point that the other thing we can get into race, but uh, where Stevens says, you know, white supremacy is essentially is is the foundation uh, of our government, the white race. Well, would that have been any different than the United States government? I mean, w- was that different than the U.S. government? Was the U.S. government not the same way? So, uh, again, this is kind of shock and awe history, but it doesn't take into the complexities of the situation.
0: All right, Brian, I'm going to take a quick break from all this McClanahan deliciousness for just a moment. As I lay out what my strategy would be if I were the younger Tom Woods, I would be picking up a skill while I was in high school, something to fall back on. If it should ever come to that, I've always got something in my pocket that I can do. I'd go over to Fiverr. I'd look at some of the services that are in high demand. Then I'd go to Skillshare.com, and I would learn how to do that particular thing. And then I would start offering it inexpensively on Fiverr to build up a portfolio for myself. And by the time I graduated, I'd have a beautiful portfolio and be ready to take on clients in whatever area that was. Now, of course, that's a strategy you can equally well do as an adult. Pick up a side skill that you can monetize, and you can do it super easily with Skillshare which gives you access to over 25,000 classes in all kinds of areas, business, design, finance, audio production, you name it. Well, you can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for Tom Woodshow listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. That's right. Skillshare is offering my listeners two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com woodsfree Again, go to skillshare.com slash woodsfree to start your two months now. That's skillshare.com slash woodsfree. Let's look at where he says, as an aside, that most soldiers of the Confederacy didn't have slaves or think they were fighting to preserve slavery is non sequitur. He says the argument against the South's actions in the Civil War has nothing to do with the motivations of its soldiers. But it is morally relevant in whether you think – the North is justified in uh, burning cities down <laughs> and making, you know, kids eat rats for dinner. Right. You know like it, it, that is relevant. given that those kids and those families and most of those men, as we know from their diaries and letters, certainly were not fighting for slavery it would be morally relevant as to whether – so in other words, if he's saying it's only the political elites who are to blame, okay, then at the very least, you would have to agree morally that a far preferable outcome would be a duel with the political elites of the South, Okay, If that's what you're really unhappy about, do that, and then you'll be on our side for 99 percent of the issue, which is leave these people out of it.
1: Right. Well, you know, the the funny thing about that and you look at you know the the common soldier and what they said. In fact, James McPherson, James McPherson, Now, James McPherson is no, <laughs> no one who was, but he, he wrote a book, an interesting book for cause and comrades and his statement, it, I mean, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing, but it's essentially this, the Southern soldiers were almost to a man fighting against slavery, their own enslavement. I and mean, this is, they thought that they were being enslaved by the general government. So um, they're fighting against it. Uh, and one of the things as well, you know, you're right when you when you get to the point, you know, going in and invading the south and burning cities and and the the total war tactics, even though some historians now are saying that wasn't really total war. That was that was that was not total war at all. Total war is something else. This was just uh, ensuring that you could knock out the infrastructure of the south so that they couldn't use it to defend themselves. Well, what is total war then? <laughs> uh, and if you're if you're burning cities and, and taking stuff from people and and going in and, uh, you know, destroying property, well, what is that? Uh, but regardless, one of the things that that's often maybe this piece was again written because this argument now has been much more circulated, but the original Thirteenth Amendment that is often called the Corwin Amendment, but there's a book uh, by Daniel Crofts, again, not a not a you know neo-confederate quote unquote historian, but Daniel Crofts, it's Lincoln in the Politics of Slavery, where he says, you know, this was actually Lincoln's amendment. And people that don't know, the Corwin Amendment, or what Croft says is Lincoln's amendment, would have made slavery permanent. In the southern states, it couldn't have been abolished. The United States government couldn't abolish slavery, and the south still sought independence. So if they were really just saying, look, this is all about slavery, it's the only thing we're doing, that would have protected slavery forever. And there were southerners who said, look, slavery is better protected in the union than out. If we lose, slavery is gone. I mean, they, they really thought that that would happen. So we need to stay in the union uh, because it's if we're really concerned about slavery, but independence was a higher goal than anything else. And the fact that the South, even at the end of the war, was talking about abolishing slavery shows you that independence was more important to them than the institution itself. So this argument that it's all about slavery, it's all about slavery from beginning to end, is just completely ridiculous. Uh, There is so much evidence on the other side that, uh, you know, it it wasn't slavery. The common soldier wasn't fighting for slavery. Even the Confederate government was willing at times to talk about the abolition of slavery. And The fact that the United States offered a carrot to say, look, we'll make slavery permanent if you just come back in and they didn't do it shows that there was bigger issues here than just slavery.
0: All right. So do you think then that it's – I was going to ask you a totally stupid softball question. I withdraw it. I was going (laughs) to ask you, do you think it's reasonable then to say that libertarians are just being contrarian when they're (laughs) concerned about this issue? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, the contrarian. They're they're definitely being contrarian. I think. Well, I mean, look, this idea of contrarian, we get that a lot because we're on the fringe. You know, we're the fringe guys out there, so we're the, just the contrarian. We just want to cause waves and cause problems. We just won't get in line with these good. Uh, you know, think about that. If you're saying you're contrarian, think about what that actually. This guy is saying that people are contrarian, so you're not really a free thinker if you're not a contrarian person. If you're a contrarian person, that means you're you're a thoughtful person. You're thinking about things and trying to think. Well, is there something else to this? Uh, if you're not contrarian, you're getting in line to go to the bathroom in school, right? I mean, this is everybody get in line. This is what we're going to do. This is how you have to be, you have to walk here. Do the straight line. So you know this whole idea of contrarianism. What does that even mean? It's kind of a stupid term, anyways. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I guess they would be con- these libertarians would be uh, contrarian, even though they say we are. So I don't know. Uh, Soft, one man's contrarian is another man's free thinker. I think so. Um, maybe that's the case.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's not that the establishment interpretation of history and its moralizing about different issues is always wrong, but you know, it's a good rule of thumb that it should at least be challenged and examined, because the regime we have now depends on the standard narrative of the war. Right, because that narrative is we can't let you stupid rubes get out from under our control. You know, I mean, you 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 need to be ruled by us, and there's no escape. Right, there is no escape because not because we've argued that correctly that there's no escape, but because our ipsa Dixit says there's no escape. You know, the, <laughs> we have a, a Supreme Court case where, just as an aside, they say, oh, and by the way, the secession was was not allowed, but. Here we have every argument in the world in support of that, and it's so funny to hear these people. It's like they're defending papal infallibility or something when they say, <laughs> well, the Supreme Court has already spoken about that. Right. So, you're, so in other words, you are incapable of assessing arguments on your own?
1: Right, and okay, if that's the case, then the Supreme Court also, it also ruled in 1896 that segregation is legal. Uh, so um, is that the right decision, or are you going to side with the Supreme Court decision to say it's not?
0: Or are you going to say that that was the right decision for – a? approximately 60 years, then suddenly it became the wrong decision.
1: (laughs) Right, This is ridiculous. You
0: need to have a lobotomy to think this way.
1: Right. It's it's completely stupid. It's intellectually dishonest, and I think that's the problem. And the war is the holy grail of all of American history. It's why we spend so much time talking about it uh, because it does define what's going to happen in the United States moving forward. It really is. It's the transformation from a federal republic to a national government, and that national government, as he gets in later – and we'll we'll get into some of that in the piece – he, he defends nationalism in a way to ensure civil rights and civil liberties, and this, I think, is the most powerful argument that he has for his position. So I will say that from the beginning. There is evidence that, of course, without you know, some of the federal oversight, you would have had some serious problems with civil rights and civil liberties in the United States, not just in the South, but in the United States as, as a whole. So how do you wrestle with that? And let, so we can get into that if you want to
0: yeah let's let's do that because that's what he is arguing in the last uh, couple of paragraphs, so I would be curious to hear your response to that.- mm-hmm.
1: um, yeah, so when you look at um I'm trying to to read my handwriting here because <laughs> I, I scribbled some stuff, but it's really it's really badly scribbled. Um, so he says, I like this phrase, the anti-libertarian results of the Civil War are evident. now, so he blames the South for the result of the war. And the result of the war to him, of course, was extreme centralization. He does admit, well, we got this bad centralization. It's terrible. You got executive power. But is that really the South's fault or is that the fault of the North for actually going to war? You know, there could have been secession without war. I mean, this is this is the question that's never – people don't ever – why do we have to have war? Could Lincoln have not let the South go? Could you have not had seven – States in the South, you would have had a Confederacy. You still had Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee. All these states were still in the Union. So could you have not have had two Confederacies on the continent and you would have had no war? And then there would have been no centralization. But that wasn't going to happen. Lincoln made the conscious decision to go to war, and that's one of the parts that he just doesn't seem to answer. But you get into this thing about the idea that you have this central authority ensuring that the states don't abuse power. And this is true. I mean, we we can go back and look at states saying, okay, we've had this system, now we're gonna create another system that's going to to strip, he, he, and he uses some, the phrase it's, it's um, those who defend the Confederacy in the name of liberty today must assume against all historical evidence that rationality and economic benefit would have otherwise trumped the exploitation and irrational hate that drove the institution of slavery. I don't like the word, the use of that word hate uh, in this particular context. I think we throw that around too loosely Uh, No, the word hate (laughs) thrown around too loosely. But this guy has obviously never read Eugene Genovese or Fogel and Engerman, uh, which were standard texts. Did you have to read those and, you know, Roll Jordan? I read
0: Roll Jordan. That book was huge. I read Roll
1: Jordan, Roll in college. Absolutely. And I read Fogel and Engerman in college in the same seminar. Time on the cross. Right. But I don't think people are reading these books as much anymore. And when you read those two studies on slavery, which were, first of all, uh, I think I can't remember. I think it was Fogel. Uh, who went on like the Donahue show, and he after this book came out, Time on the Cross, and it was a huge sensation because if you don't know what it is, basically he says, "Look, uh, the evidence shows that slaves weren't really abused that much, and so we, we have to rethink this institution." I mean, he was he was just ex- yeah. No, he
0: doesn't mean we have to say that it's desirable, we have to support it, but right. he's saying but that he's just saying the evidence, the, the, the shows, casual the assumptions of 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 most people, right. don't seem to be borne out by what we know now.
1: Right. He was excoriated for us. And, you know, we had roots in the 70s. So you had this pushback. And of course, he was called a racist. He's married to an African-American woman. <laughs> right. So uh, how can this guy be racist? He's just looking at the evidence and saying this is what the evidence says. But the, the fact is, you read these you read these books and you read Genovese and you read Roll Jordan Roll and you get a much more complex understanding. There wasn't hate involved here. Yes, the southerners, slave owners thought that slaves were inferior. They thought that they were childlike creatures. They said these things over and over again. But these are people that also cook their food and nurse their babies and uh, were body servants. Is that a hate relationship? I mean, I think of hate as something where you just want to kill people, Uh, just kill them for killing them. And you didn't you didn't see that. It was much more complex in the South. It's not I I, unfortunately have to say this because it's 2019. I'm not defending slavery at all. It's a horrible institution. Anytime you enslave people and force them against their will to do anything is a horrible situation. But we have to understand the complexities of it in order to really grasp uh, the full the full uh, history of the institution itself in the United States. So. Um, That hate is such a bad word. And then he doesn't even bring up, and he does say that the North had some laws too and these kind of things. Jim Crow was invented in the North. Uh, C. Van Woodward actually brought that up in his book, The Strange Career of Jim Crow. Hey, Southerners were were perplexed why the North was so opposed to Jim Crow because they invented it, right? You go and look at Connecticut. Um, They actually called it Jim Crow in Connecticut in the 1850s. There was a Southern uh, lady who was traveling into Connecticut on a train, and she had her slave with her, and they forced her to go into the into the segregated car because the Jim Crow's law said that she had to go sit in the segregated in the in the black only car uh, because that's where you would have to go with your servant. So here we had Jim Crow in in Connecticut in 1850 in the 1850s, um, and they called it that. So uh, th- this whole it's so simplistic. It just it makes me sick. To see anything that anybody would write like this where they don't understand the entire process or or the complexities of American history at this point. Now, as far as the argument what the states would have done, this takes into account the fact that uh, Reconstruction was a – the way that Reconstruction took place. I mean Southerners could say, well, look, the, the reason that the South was impoverished, the reason that we had these situations because – this was forced on the South, and the South wasn't allowed to go through the same type of emancipation process that, say, New York could go through, or New Jersey, or Massachusetts. Uh, you had tremendous upheaval, and so there's naturally going to be some type of of pushback against that. I mean, logically, can, can we think any other way would happen? I mean, you had people that could vote, now they can't vote. People that couldn't vote, now they can vote, uh, and you have the Reigns of power being transferred back and forth. I mean, did we really think there wasn't going to be some type of political upheaval here and that people were going to be blamed and that there were going to be abuses? We, uh, we know that happened. We know the South uh, was abusing African-Americans at times. We know that happened. Uh, but did we expect anything else? And so it's like saying you know, the general government caused it. Now the general government has to solve it. This is the same thing where you have, you know, the, the with the Federal Reserve, the general government caused the Great Depression. Now we have to actually have all these laws to solve the Great Depression, right? So this is the kind of argument we have with these, with this situation where the states can abuse power. You had a general government created problem in the South that didn't exist beforehand. So um, that's, I mean, that's my, my argument for this, that, you know, if the general government wrecks it, well, then you're relying on the same thing that wrecked it to fix it. And that's going to create issues in and of itself as well.
0: Moreover, I can think in the world today of places with injustices, and I would not necessarily want the United Nations to be empowered to solve them. Right. I mean, I, you know, there, now that's not a perfect analogy because there are some problems in the world that are so intractable that I don't know if, if they'll ever, ever be solved. Whereas I do think there were ways in the United States that some of the post-war issues could have been solved organically and gradually. And incidentally on racial issues, I have no doubt that people thought they were I mean I think some people were not as benign as as we might think, but I do think there were plenty of people who thought they were helping mm-hmm. when they said, well, there's been housing segregation in America and that's led to educational segregation and that's led to poorer opportunities for black students and so we're going to try and do something about this, and I think some of them, uh, not all, but some probably just had good intentions, will bust them around and this and that. And it turned out that this wound up making whites and blacks hate each other far more than they ever had, far more. They made the schools impossible to run. They destroyed the, the local organic little patriotisms of, of neighborhoods and stuff. So there are plenty of times when top-down solutions that a policy wonk thinks will surely work Don't actually work,
1: right? And I think that there are well-meaning people. Look, there there were well-meaning people in the 19th century that wanted to help slaves and former slaves, and that they wanted. and And we can understand their position. Look, you have political power now. You have things you want freedom. We I understand all of that. Uh, This was this was a difficult process to say the least. And even Alexander, the guy that wrote the that made the cornerstone speech. If you know anything about Stevens. After the war was over, he made a very famous speech in the Georgia Assembly saying, hey, we have an obligation to treat our former slaves well and to make sure that they have everything they need because these people were with us all the time during the war and before that. We have an obligation to these people that are with us. Um, And so that's often missed too. Uh, We we don't talk about that, uh, that Stevens uh, was saying, we need to take care of these slaves. And the other thing Lincoln was asked by Stevens at the Hampton Roads Peace Conference, what are you gonna do with the slaves? And Lincoln's response was root hog or die. Basically, we're gonna abolish slavery and that's it. And if we're just gonna throw them to the wolves uh, and that's all that's gonna happen. Now, is that, a, is that a, uh, a responsible response to a huge crisis uh, that was gonna develop because you ended slavery immediately the way you did? Again, no other state in the union at the time ever abolished slavery like that. You know, it was always gradual. Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, it was always gradual. There were, there were conditions put in place. Okay, we're going to make sure these things happen so these people can be integrated into society and not just immediate and we're done and then what do you do with it? So I think that's the irresponsible thing in all of this. The Lincoln administration was entirely irresponsible. Uh, I think many of the people that participated in the Freedmen's Bureau, I think they were a lot of those people were Particularly the teachers and others. I mean, they were they were uh, you know people that were just concerned about what are we going to do here? How are we going to help these people? And there were Southerners concerned about the same thing. So, uh, but you you had a a government created crisis in the South that was then people were looking for more government to solve the crisis that they created. And I, I think that's the main issue with all of this. And it's not to say that again. I'm not defending slavery. I'm not defending. I mean, this I have to say this because you know we're in 2019 uh, the, those things are, are horrible. And I think that we should try to come up with any way we can to, to come up with a solution to those problems. Um, but when you look to government for solutions and then you look to government to, for anything, it's going to create the mess that we had.
0: All right, we'll leave it there. Of course, I'm going to link to the article that we've been talking about at tomwoods.com slash 1332. And I'll probably have one or two other things up there. I think i didn't I write something down? I want to put something on the Compact theory. So we'll definitely have some good stuff up there. And of course, you should listen to the Brian McClanahan show. Brian spelled with an O, B R I O N. Check out Brian at his website, brianmcclanahan.com. Opt into his email list. He'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and also an audiobook. So he gives you even more than I give you. And uh, you'll get to hear a, uh, may I say, contrarian historian <laughs> uh, periodically on your devices and in your email inbox. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. All right, that's going to do it for today. Remember, Brian teaches at libertyclassroom.com. So if you've not joined yet, you get a nice dose of Brian McClanahan. He also has the McClanahan Academy over at McClanahanAcademy.com, where he teaches history courses there. And in general, teaching courses is a good way to make a little side income and to position yourself as an expert in something. And it doesn't have to be an 87 lecture course. It can be a course that goes for 25 minutes. Some of the Skillshare classes are very, very short, but they convey a quick little skill that people are looking to learn. So you should think about that. What do I have to offer? It's a great little thing to have your own little flagship product, even if it's something you give away to get people on your mailing list or just so people can sample what a smart person you are or even to sell as a low-ticket product. It's something to think about. Brian's doing well. I'm doing well with it. A lot of course providers are doing well. You don't have to be well known. There are platforms. Anyway, the point is, you should learn about how to do this and how to get eyeballs in front of your course because it really, really is one of the best, most straightforward ways to make the internet pay uh, for you. Right? The internet is not just cat videos. And if you're not, if you're not, ma- if you're, ma- if you're letting the internet be lazy, that's on you. You got to make the internet work for you. So I put together some free resources teaching you how to do this, how to create a course, where to put it so people find it, and how to drive traffic to it, get eyeballs in front of it, all that stuff. Cost you nothing over at tomwoods.com slash courses So definitely check that out. Cost you nothing, and it's highly valuable information. tomwoods.com slash courses Now go out there and make me proud, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.